in terms of sustainability, it is something that I think you have to constantly be working for. And it's not an end point. It's actually something that you're going to have to continually strive towards because things change around you. In regard to the land, our farm, we don't want to be sustainable. We want to be regenerative. We actually want to improve things. We want to regenerate it. We want to make it better than it actually is. That's what I mean by regenerative. Sustainable means to me keeping it as good as it is but not making it better than it currently is. And we want to improve things. Welcome to Mindful Business Founder, the podcast for fashion business founders seeking to build a meaningful and profitable business. I'm Liki Tang, and I'm here with you today to find out how mindful founders build strong businesses that deliver value to people and to the planet. Today's episode is the second part of our conversation with Kate Field, who has joined us from Tasmania in Australia, where she runs Lip Farm together with her husband, Ian. They started Lip Farm in 2012 because they were on a quest for making the perfect cheese. In the previous episode, we talked extensively about the philosophy behind Lip Farm. If you haven't listened to it, you still can go ahead with this one and come back to the other one later. Now, in this part of our conversation, we will continue on our exploration of the fascinating world of running a farm and goat cheese making. This part is packed with some very practical lessons on how Kate created a market for goat meat in her community and how they built their goat farm and cheese factory. And maybe, who knows, you might be inspired to have your own farm as well. We will also discuss sustainability and, again, some interesting ideas in this conversation. But my favorite part is when Kate shares with us what she loves about her life as a farmer. I find these thoughts really profound and moving in so many ways. So if you want to find out more about life in Tasmania, farming, goats, sustainability, and finding meaning in business and in life in general. Join me for this conversation with Kate Field. In our preparation call, you mentioned that you have to create a market for goat meat. Mm. Can you explain the problem you were facing? Yeah. So in 2012, when we moved onto the farm, the previous farmer had had about 300 small rangeland cashmere goat cross animals on the farm that we inherited. They'd sort of been left to run quite wild, so they weren't very domesticated at all. They'd had a little bit of husbandry, but not a whole lot. Goats need to have their hooves trimmed, and I'm not sure if they'd ever had their hooves trimmed or not when we first got here. But we, we inherited these goats. We didn't have our girls yet, our milking girls. And later that year, about six months later, our local farmer's market started. And we realised that we needed to get rid of the goats because we didn't want any potential diseases that they had contaminating our brand new dairy herd. And we found that we could get them slaughtered and we could get them butchered and we could sell the meat at the farmer's market. 
But goat isn't widely eaten, or well, it wasn't back then in Australia, in our community anyway. We've since had an explosion of different cultures moving to Hobart and there's a lot more desire for those cultures or people from those cultures and ethnic backgrounds to have a food that they used to eat quite a lot at home. Goat is the most widely eaten red meat in the world. Uh, So people are looking for goat meat these days. But I basically had to create a market. So what we did is we made the goat meat very accessible. So we turned a whole lot into sausages and they were really good tasting sausages. And Australians love sausages and they love a barbecue. So they'll chuck the sausages on the grill and um, and that's easy. It's really easy. Everyone knows how to cook a sausage. Everyone knows how to eat a sausage. Some of the other stuff that we had to do or I had to do was with some of our friends who are chefs, we came up with some recipes. So we'd actually do the value adding to the the base product. And so we'd sell ready to eat meals. So we'd sell a goat curry. We'd also sell a goat ragu. I'd always have tasting. Uh, I'd have sausages for people to taste. I'd have the curry to taste or the ragu to taste. And so people go, oh, yeah, that's actually really good. And they'd buy some of it. The other thing that I started to do was I started to develop recipes of how I would cook the meat. And I'm a very basic cook. I'm a very simple cook. I'm not a chef, so there's nothing fancy. And the ingredients I use, pretty much everyone has in their pantry already, which means that it was really accessible for people. And I could talk to people about how I cook it. I get really passionate about the product. I I don't know if you can hear it in my voice. Definitely. Yes, I want to eat it. So when people come and talk to me about it, I get really excited and I get them enthusiastic and I would give them recipes. I still do this. I give them photocopies. Um, We had a cookbook. Our local farmer's market developed a cookbook, uh, a self-published cookbook that did extraordinarily well as a fundraiser. And I put a couple of recipes in that. And then a brand Tasmania picked up one of those recipes and had it, the the photography was stunning and had the photograph and the recipe and it was given out at an annual festival in Tasmania called the Taste of Tasmania, which is, I think, a seven or eight day festival that starts just after Christmas and goes into the new year. So people were exposed to the recipe and I you know, my little recipe that I sort of cobbled together from reading a whole lot about slow-cooked lamb dishes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's done really well. People are now experimenting a little bit more as well. And with the influx of migrants to Hobart and the development of some more food festivals, there's been a lot more interest in goat and also eating different foods. So that's why you, you say that there's a very high demand for goat meat now because you've created this market. I think I've got a really loyal customer base, but also over the last six or seven years, there's been quite a lot of migrants from different ethnic backgrounds settling in Hobart, which has also driven a need for access to goat meat. it's difficult and you don't want to scale lip farm mm-hmm. but say that someone else wants to replicate the what you're doing now what kind of skills does it require well i think part of the reason that it works the way it does is 
largely because of our social license, because our products are high quality, artisan, handmade products. They're special. They're not necessarily everyday products, even though they're sometimes three meals a day products in our household. But uh, let me go back a step. So what we do is different from most commercial dairies. So most commercial dairies, um, your mother animal has her baby or babies. Goats normally have two. They usually have one boy, one girl. So the mother animal will have her baby. And then what usually happens in the dairy world is that the babies are removed from the mother after 24 hours. And the mother is then milked twice a day. And she just goes out into the pasture, she eats the pasture, she comes back in the evening time and gets milked, she gets extra food to be milked and then she wanders back out into the pasture, comes back in the morning, etc. The babies are either hand-raised or if they're not seen as being of value, they will be moved to an abattoir and then the carcass will either be, in the case of uh, cows, might be sold as veal or as pet food or as blood and bone for fertiliser. Um, I'm not sure where else they go. I don't really know much about that part of the industry because we're not engaged in it at all. What we do is quite different. So we have our female goat, known as a doe. She will have her babies, and they're usually a boy and a girl, and baby goats are called kids. So she'll have her kids, and we will keep the kids with the mother. So they stay with their mum for about five days completely. Um, we occasionally have to milk them a little bit because they produce so much milk, but the milk is for the babies, uh, and that's got the colostrum in it. Then when the babies are a little bit older and ready to go out into the pasture, they'll go with the mums, they'll take them with them into the paddocks. Sometimes when they're really young, they often just leave them back in their paddock and one or two mums will hang out there with all the babies, just keeping an eye on them. And all the other mums will go off and feed in the paddocks. They come home in the evenings. And at that point, we separate the mums and the babies. So the babies all go into their little shed. The mums go into their shed and they produce milk overnight, which we then harvest in the morning for the cheese. After we've finished milking, they join back up with their babies. The babies will suckle and there will be milk there for them to suckle and then they go back out into the pasture again. The other thing that we do is while we're milking the does with the kids, we actually feed them a little bit of milk. So we pick them up and handle them and give them a little bit of milk, usually 50 to 100 mils. It's just a little top up, sort of like an entree before they go and have their <laughs> meal with their mum. And... Uh, and because we choose to do it that way, it means that we can keep all the kids, including the boys and any girls that we don't want. We grow them up to somewhere between 12 months to two years of age. And then when they're of a size and we've got a demand for the product, um, that's when we have them turned into meat. Mm -hmm. It's not a very elegant way of saying it, but it's a little bit more, it's less confronting. And so they have a great life. They're part of a herd. They're with their mums. And then they have one really bad day. Yeah. 
but it's life. It is life. And in order to have life, you have to have death, which is just the reality of life. Yeah. So to scale that would be very difficult. Yeah. Because you need a significant amount of land, and land is very expensive. You also need water, both water that falls from the sky. Um, so all our water is water that we capture that falls from the sky. So the pasture and the plants that grow rely on a rainfall mm. and the, the water that the animals drink relies on rainfall as well. And to scale that, um, to have adequate land, you would need to pay a lot more money. And whether that is actually scalable, I don't know. There is a dairy called Meredith Dairy, and they were in a kind of similar situation. I think they'd gotten bigger than we are now, and they were working a lot. I mean, we work a lot. We work seven days a week, but they were they were always working. And they sort of looked at their lifestyle and realised that they either had to scale down or scale up. Yes, and they chose to scale up. So they have 7,000 goats, but they do it very differently from us. Um, so they milk twice a day. I don't know what they do with their kids. A lot of the time the kids are actually sold off as tiny babies and then hand-raised either to be sold as milking does or to be sold as chevron as meat sometime down the track. And that's often by another farmer or a share farmer or someone that they're leasing their labour to raise the kids. So it's just a, what we're doing is very different. We think it's far more gentle, both on the kids and on the mums. The other thing we do with the mums, our does, is that we dry them off every year, which means that we stop milking them and they stop producing milk. So the kids naturally wean. If they haven't weaned by mid-April, by that stage they're over six months of age, they're seven months of age, we have to take the mums away to get them pregnant again. So they, they typically are force weaned. But, you know, it's like breastfeeding a teenager. They should have weaned a long, long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> but the, so the mums will get pregnant and then we'll milk them for maybe two more months. And then for three months of the, the last three months of their five month pregnancy, they're not milked at all. They're just allowed to grow their new babies, recover from their milking season. We have a holiday, they have a holiday, and then it all starts again in spring. You started lip farm in 2012, 2013, yeah? Yeah, yeah 2012. From my understanding, you didn't have any experience in farming because you grew up in the city and neither did your husband. That's right. So what was the experience? How did you start? What did you do to start? Did everything go as you expected, as you expected <laughs> it to be? And um, oh, it's farming. Nothing ever goes as expected. <laughs> so can you share some interesting stories? Okay. So Ian had spent quite a bit of time up in the, the east coast of Scotland when he was a kid where his grandfather was a a market gardener and used to supply the township with veggies. He used to plough the field with a horse mm. and a wooden plough behind. 
In Scotland. Oh, my goodness, it gets so cold. The ground freezes there in the winter. I mean, of course it does. It freezes pretty much everywhere except in Australia (laughs) and New Zealand. But anyway, so he spent a lot of time, a lot of his summers, up with his grandfather and helping him. Mm. So he was exposed to country living and farming. Um, And I did a couple of, you know, I loved helping my mum's cousins, my second cousins, milk the cows. Just loved Mm. it. Um, but we both followed academic careers. Yes. So I became a doctor, which is really handy if things go wrong with the animals. I've got a few clues Mm. and I can actually do stuff when I consult with the vet. Um, and he became a scientist and he was actually an ecologist. So one of the things that he says that really resonate, I think, with everyone is that as a university lecturer, he was telling people about ecology and about principles for ecosystem land management, but he wasn't actually practicing it. So his ecology was based in the subantarctic and the Antarctic, and he was working with, you know, elephant seals and penguins and, mm. and so on. So large animals, but wild. And he was standing up lecturing about it and thinking, this is ridiculous. Here I am telling people what to do, but I've got no experience. I don't do it myself. And this way, with farming, he actually gets to practice now what he used to teach. Mm. So he had a lot of understanding about ecosystem management. Um, He'd had a lot of experience with large animals, wild large animals, with some of the research that he'd been doing in the subantarctic and the Antarctic. And, of course, I understand mammal physiology. Of course, it's different for ruminants compared, like the digestion of ruminants versus Mm. humans. Monogastric creatures is different. But, you know, at the end of the day, we're all mammals. It's not that different. And we both kind of figured that we're reasonably intelligent people who know how to read. (laughs) We also know how to ask questions. And we're also humble enough to realise that we really know nothing and that we are able to ask for help. We're not too proud to ask for help. So we do a lot of research. We read a lot. We ask questions a lot. We presume nothing. We like to learn from others. We're quite happy to, to investigate And we're happy to run little experiment on our own farm to work out what we can do that's better. Mm. Uh, And that's fun, to be honest, because we're both, you know, little geeky scientists, really, who are (laughs) running little experiments in compost, for instance. So a lot of our experiments revolve around compost Mm. (laughs) and how we can better grow grass as well. Mm. So using all sorts of things like seaweed extract and all sorts of stuff, Mm -hmm. really interesting stuff. But you, you must have made some experiments that did not turn the way you expected it to turn out. Well, early on, so uh, we got our first lot of goats um, in the spring of 2012. So that was sort of probably late September, early October. And we were initially um, got 10 goats as babies they came to us as babies you you just can't buy milking does they're too valuable an asset and so you have to buy them as babies and grow them on and in retrospect uh we're so relieved because (laughs) we had to build a dairy and uh, dairy products themselves are of course a high-risk food Mm. 
in that they can carry all sorts of bacterial that can cause disease to humans and quite bad diseases to humans. So it's a very highly regulated industry in Australia. So a lot of the specifications for the buildings and the food safety aspect are quite stringent. So to be able to build a dairy takes a significant amount of time, especially when you're building a dairy for goats when it's not done regularly. The main dairy industry is cow dairy, so there are a lot more of them around. So everything's pitched at cows. And, of course, cows are much bigger than goats. They have four teats. Hmm. Goats only have two teats. So, you know, things things are a bit different. So Ian had to do a lot of research and he basically designed, project-managed, built our dairy and our cheese factory. And that process took at least two years and then another two years on top of that to build the the cheese factory as well. And there were lots of permits and regulations mm. and discussions that had to happen. And he did a lot of visiting other places to see what they were doing as well. So we're very grateful in retrospect that we got little kids that we then had to grow up. And we don't start um, milking them until they're two years old. So they have 19 months to grow. And then at 19 months, they're joined with the the buck and five months later. So when they hit two, they have their first kid and that's when we start milking them. So we had two years up our sleeve, but we had these 18 doe kids that we were hand feeding twice a day, milk feeding, bottle feeding twice a day. And they were lovely and they all have names. All our goats have names. They all have personalities. They are all individuals very much. Um, And so we knew all these 18 girls by name and we quite liked them. I mean, they're loved. If you're a dog person, you'll like goats. They're they're very similar to dogs. Mm. I'm not sure what cat people think of them. I, I really wouldn't have a clue what cat people think of goats, but dog people really like goats. We're dog people. Mm. Anyway, <laughs> so um, there's one day that we, we were working really long hours on the farm. This was before we had children, so we could put in incredibly long hours, but we also really like good food. So we put together a picnic and we decided that we were going to go out onto the farm and we'd have a picnic. So we wander out onto the farm and we set up our picnic on the ground and um, lo and behold, the goats see us. And of course, they love us because we always have food for them when they see us. So they want (laughs) over to us and we're sitting in the middle of the pasture surrounded by 18 small goats who are starting to climb all over us with their hooves in our picnic and (laughs) eating our bread, trying to eat our cheese, trying to eat our (laughs) apples. Picnicking with goats does not work. That was definitely an epic fail. (laughs) And then we've had lots of other fencing disasters, learning how to put up fences. Ian's quite good at it. I'm still learning. Eight years on, I'm still learning. Um, Having to fix fences and what, oh, I spent days last spring. This is only five months ago. Days with Erin, um, who is our farmhand who works with us. She and I get on really well. And the goats, the, the ones that were one year old, kept going through our eastern boundary into our neighbours. And we were getting really sick of it because then we'd have to go and fetch them back. And it's right over the other side of the farm. It's just a pain. And it's not fair on our neighbours either, more importantly. 
and we decided that we needed so Ian kept sending us over to fix the fence and we'd spend hours fixing this blessed bloody fence anyway I was really pleased with us we'd fixed the fence we'd absolutely totally and utterly nailed it there was no way those bloody goats were going through the fence the goats didn't come home did they so I went to have a look and there they are over on the neighbor's mm. fence but now that we've fixed the fence they couldn't get back through the mm. fence to get home mm. so then I had to work out how I was going to get them through the fence so that they could get home so I had to basically open up the fence mm. um, I didn't have to cut it I just had to undo some of the stuff that we'd already fixed <laughs> earlier in the days fixing oh sorry to hear that, so that <laughs> So I could get them and there they are just like pushing their way through the fence. So yeah, I've got you know, <laughs> 20 goats walking through the fence and I'm thinking this is just ridiculous. I'm not spending any more time <laughs> fixing this bloody fence. So I actually um, fenced all the animals out of that half of the farm. Then the neighbour came with his front end loader and he bulldozed a section of the fence and then we spent the next two weeks putting up a new fence, mm. which is now goat-proof. Good. And until last week was cow-proof, but his cows are on our property now. We spend our lives chasing animals, all of us. <laughs> it's quite very frustrating. What does bring you most joy in working in this farm on a day-to-day -day basis or is on a seasonal basis? Uh, some of the stuff I love. Um I love when I've been working in town, which is 50 kilometres away, about a 45-minute drive away. So after a busy shift in the ED or the ER, I think they call it in the state, I come home. I've had 45 minutes just driving. There's no traffic lights, so I just drive. And I get home and the air smells clean. And I can't describe it other than there's a smell of cow poo, goat poo yeah. and salt because we're quite close to the coast. And the air smells clean. And it's just like instantly all my stress and worry has definitely gone by that point. And I just feel like I'm at home. That's one of the joys. The stars are amazing out here. So you go out at night and if it's a clear night, you just see stars like you guys don't get to see stars like that in the Northern Hemisphere, especially not in Europe. Having recently been in Europe I don't think I saw a single star while I was in the Netherlands. It's just stunning. The goats themselves bring me a lot of joy. They come up to you, they say hello, they have a chat, you talk to them, they answer back. You talk goat. Oh, yeah, definitely talk goat. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, you might be chuffed being living in Paris and being a fluent French speaker. You have to have a call to call the animals to you. And you train them to the call. And the call that we have is salut. We go walk out onto the hill and yell salut. <laughs> and the goats will say, meh, back at you. <laughs> They're lovely. And that they answer back. You call, they answer. Mm. You can have conversations with them. They have a way of nibbling your ear at first and then they chomp it. But they'll nibble their, your ear with their little lips. That just makes you feel loved. They're really lovely. Um, the landscape itself, the vistas that we have are just superb and it just makes you feel very grounded and appreciative. I have so much gratitude for where we've ended up. I can't imagine wanting to ever live anywhere else. 
And then I see gorgeous photos of different places in the world and think, oh, yeah, I could probably live there as well. But this is home and it's just beautiful. I'm grateful for the wildlife that we have. We have an endangered species of eagle that nests on or near the farm and we regularly see that. I think there are only meant to be 400 nesting pairs in Tasmania and one of them lives on our farm. And we've seen them produce offspring year after year, and that's very rewarding. We have endangered frogs and parrots who rely on the flowering gum trees on our farm. And to see them feeding brings me great joy because there's habitat for them. They can nest, but they can produce offspring and they can survive. And that's just fantastic. Seeing the farm change in positive ways is great. Seeing it change in ways that aren't as positive is really interesting and gives me passion to continue, gives us both passion to continue to strive to make further improvements. Um, What else brings me great joy? Uh, The cycle, the cycle of the seasons. So when you live on the land, the, the season the seasonality is so, you really feel it because you live the seasons. So spring is an incredibly busy time for us because the goats are having their babies and I take a month or so off work so that I can be a goat midwife. It's really, really busy days. I lose five kilos even though I'm eating voraciously because I'm, you know, trying to patch bloody fences and I'm and I'm hand milking and then I'm machine milking and there's just a lot going on and a lot of walking up and down the hill. But it's a wonderful time. You know, you get these beautiful little babies and you get to help them. Sometimes they're not great. Something's gone wrong with the baby and sometimes you win that battle and that brings you great joy. Sometimes you lose that battle and that brings you great sorrow. But you can't be happy without knowing what it is to be sad and vice versa. So it's a time of great joy most of the time. It's great joy and extreme fatigue. But I go back to work looking and feeling healthy and fit and invigorated and fresh because it is just such a wonderful antidote to a life that is lived without meaning. So it's just wonderful. So keeping grounded, recognising what is important in life is what I find the farm does for me. So family, seasons, good food, relationships, these are all really, really important aspects of life that you really understand when you experience the high highs and the low lows that you do when you're farming. That's beautiful. Really. One of my last question is, you started this farm because you were in a, on a quest to make the best cheese possible. And you realized that part of it, actually the, the most important thing for making good goat cheese is to have very good land and um, the animal welfare. So you built all this virtuous cycle because you explained that it's more productive. And so would you consider your business a sustainable business? Because you didn't start it as like, okay, I'm going to make it because it's good for the animals. It's good for the environment. But you started the other way around. 
So would you consider yourself as a sustainable business today or? Ah, sustainable. That's an interesting word. It's loaded with so much subtext. To us, a sustainable business has to be sustainable in three different ways. So you have to be financially sustainable. Mm -hmm. It has to be environmentally sustainable. And it has to be lifestyle sustainable. Because if it's not economically sustainable or financially sustainable, then you can't look after the land and you can't have a lifestyle. So the enterprise will fail. If you're not looking after the land, particularly with farming, then it doesn't matter how much money you've got or how fabulous your life is, it's going to all fall apart because you're not going to be able to continue to be financially sustainable if you're not looking after the environment or the land. Even just thinking on a small scale farming context, I'm not even talking about the rest of the planet. And it has to be lifestyles sustainable because if you're not managing your lifestyle you will become burnt out you will become depressed your mental health will suffer and that can have devastating consequences for either you or your family so it has to be sustainable on all three pillars i would say that financially we're sustainable at the moment i think we've got a way to go I think that we need to improve our ability to withstand uh, withstand change and uh, hiccups in the road that might occur. I think that from an environmental perspective, if you look at just our local landscape where we are, I'm not even talking about our local community, we've still got more to do. We are in the middle of drought. We've had just probably 55 to 60% of our annual rainfall for the last two years. And so we've had to make some changes as to how we're managing our animals in response to that. And I don't know when that's going to change. People assure me that droughts end, but it feels like it never will Mm. because it's something that you have no control over. So there are ways that we can farm where we can improve our ability for our land to hold on to water um, and we need to be able to do that. But our big problem at the moment is that it isn't raining. So we're trying to manage that as best we can. What I would like to see is our whole community working together more collaboratively so that it's not just our little one kilometre by one kilometre, sort of 300 acres or 106 hectares, Um, of land that we're concentrating on, but we're part of the bigger, wider community. And I think if we all start thinking not just about our own patch, but the patches next door to us and then the patches next door to them, that that will have a, a bigger effect in a shorter period of time on our planet. And then lifestyle sustainable, things are getting better for us. They're still not great it's still really hard to have a day off. Mm. Uh, We had uh, 24 hours off farm because we had to travel to Melbourne for an award on Friday and then we had a wedding uh, yesterday that started at 3 and we got home at 11. Ian had the farmer's market prior to that, so he left home at 6am and got home at 11.30pm yesterday and he had to work bloody hard the week prior to organise milk and cheese making, etc., so that we could go to Melbourne mm. and go to this wedding and he's got to, you know, work bloody hard to catch up afterwards as well. So we're not quite 
at the lifestyle sustainable yet, mm-hmm. but now we've got employees, mm-hmm. things are getting better. And as we train our employees more and uh, improve their capacity to perform both cheese making and farming tasks means that we'll be able to manage our workloads a little better as well. So in terms of sustainability, it is something that I think you have to constantly be working for and it's not an end point. It's actually something that you're going to have to continually strive towards because things change around you. I used to think that work-life balance would just miraculously appear like a trophy (laughs) in my cabinet. And my friend said to me, a very, very dear friend, my friend who um, I caught up with in the Netherlands, she said to me, Kate, you realise that balance is a doing word. It's a verb. It doesn't just happen. You have to work for it. You have to work towards it. And I went, oh, my goodness, it was like an epiphany for me. I did just think that balance was going to be handed to me one day, that at some point somehow it would have hit Mm. the right moment in time to be awarded the balance trophy, but it's not. It's something that you constantly fine-tuning. You know, you pick up a little bit more here and you realise that you're overburdened so you have to shed something, so you shed something and then suddenly you've got more capacity and you think, oh, this is a great opportunity, I'm going to take that opportunity and suddenly you're overburdened again. So work-life balance is something that we're constantly striving to achieve. In regard to the land, our farm, we don't want to be sustainable. We want to be regenerative. We actually want to improve things. We want to regenerate it. We want to make it better than it actually is. That's what I mean by regenerative. Sustainable means to me keeping it as good as it is but not making it better than it currently is and we want to improve things. So that means increasing our topsoil, increasing our soil biodiversity, increasing our plant biodiversity increasing our insect populations, working towards that, improving our ability for our soils to retain water. That to us is regenerating the land and just being sustainable means that we're not taking more out of the land than we're putting back. We want to be putting back more than we're taking out. I wasn't expecting such a thorough answer and such a different answer because um, most people would say, oh, we're sustainable because we do that, that, that. And your answer is very comprehensive and uh, very detailed. We do do sustainable stuff. Like we produce more power now with our solar panels and our photovoltaic systems than we actually utilise on farm. Tasmania is lucky. Like we're 100% renewable energy in Tassie, which is pretty fantastic. But, um, I mean, that's an easy thing. We think we're the only dairy in Australia that produces more energy than they use because it's a high-energy industry because milking machines take a lot of energy, making cheese takes a lot of energy. You need fridges, you need humidifiers, you need pasteurizers, etc., etc. But Ian's planned this really carefully. He's He's been absolutely amazing in his design and the development over years in a stepwise process to be able to get to that point. I think it's awesome, but 
I think the big picture stuff, as you were saying, it's what's really important for people to get their heads around because everyone can go, oh, yeah, so-and-so said this and this and this and this and tick a list, but that's not necessarily useful in their context. So having the big picture sort of pillars and ideas so that they can then apply it to their context and then work out what the tick box details are, I think is super important. So where can people find you? I'm based in France. I would love to buy your cheese, but I understand <laughs> it's not possible unless I go to Australia, which is not happening anytime soon right now. So eating your cheese, having your cheese is off topic, but just If I want to connect with you, how can people find you? So we essentially have two arms to the business. So the actual place itself and the meat side of the business is under the moniker Leap Farm, L-E-A-P. So we're leapfarm.com.au. Okay. Or you can follow our Leap Farm handle on Instagram and also on Facebook. Great. Our cheese is under the moniker Tongola Cheese. Tongola is actually a Swiss word for little hut in the Alps because oh. a lot of our cheeses are based on a Swiss style and my favourite cheese that we make is a, a Swiss Alpine style cheese. Oh, it's just so beautiful. But Tongola is tong, T-O-N-G-O-L-A and it's tongola.com.au or the Instagram and Facebook handles are Tongola Cheese. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time, Kate. That's a pleasure. Bye. Lip Farm is truly inspiring. What I've learned from this conversation with Kate is her honest approach to the question of sustainability in her business and in her life. It is not a list with boxes that needs to be checked. And there's no one-size-fits-all type of approach. It is a continuous process. It is a holistic approach and it needs to be intentional at every step of the way. The other thing that really resonated with me is Kate's attitude and mindset. It is filled with joy and it is full of appreciation and gratefulness. Even when she faces setbacks, which apparently happens a lot when you work with animals, She always tries to find out how she can learn from the situation and how she can do better next time. I think that being grateful and seeing opportunities are two essential and powerful skills that we all need to learn to develop and use more. As usual, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at podcast at themindfulfounder.com. Podcasts at themindfulfounder.com. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon. Did you like this episode? If you enjoyed listening to Mindful Business Founder, it will mean a lot to me if you can share this with your friends who are also in the sustainability journey. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or any of your favorite podcast platforms. Bye bye now.